All right, well, we are uh, in the middle of this series called The Story. We are trying to unlock the grand narrative of God's story for us and for this world. And it is a good news story. That's why it's called the gospel, the good news story of what God is doing here. Uh, very often our world is driven by bad news stories. You know, you, you listen to the news, cable news, um, you know, online, it's a lot of bad stuff. Where's the carnage? Where's the fighting? Where's the political back and forth? And we're kind of drawn to that. The human brain's wired for that. But every once in a while, it's good to latch onto a good news story. Here's a couple of examples. This is from the good news story feed. Uh, here is Liz Smith. She's the director of nursing at Franciscan Children's Hospital. She saw a couple of years ago, this, uh, this preemie baby being wheeled through the hospital, and she found out the backstory that this preemie baby actually suffered with neonatal abstinence syndrome because the mother was using heroin, cocaine, and methadone during her pregnancy. Not only that, she discovered that the five months that baby was in the hospital, there was not a single visitor, not one visitor in five months. Her heart broke, and she said to herself at that very moment, she says, I'm going to be this child's mother. And she spent two years kind of fighting the court system to get full parental custody of, of this little baby, Giselle. And uh, just recently, here's this great announcement. After 553 days of sharing our love and home, today we share our last name. And that happened uh, a few months ago. And uh, that's the kind of story. We can just applaud that kind of story, right? That's so cool. It's a good news story. And then you have uh, William Preston. William Preston uh, has a little bit of a difficult life. He's being raised by a single mother who is struggling. In fact, a single mom describes her life as a life that has been hell filled with so many tears, anger, confusion, and heartache. And then she talks about the shock of her life when she discovered that all of this work that her son has been putting in has been for uh, one purpose, and that's to buy a car, not for himself, but for his mom. Mom needs a car, and here's a 13-year-old boy who's been working every single week, just every dollar, putting it together to buy a car for his mom. And she says, who does that? What 13-year-old kid buys a car for their mom? She says, I'm so proud of my boy. So we, we see stories like that, and we think, okay, despite all the calamity that's in this world, and there's a lot, all the tragedy of this world, and there's a lot, all of the hatred and violence of the world, and there's a lot. Despite all of that, there is good news out there, not just in the onesie twosie stories that are, are kind of heartwarming. Those are great. But what God is doing in this world is phenomenal. It is good. It is powerful. And we can be a part of it. And, and so our theme throughout this story uh, series has been this, that something wonderful is happening here, right here, right now. Something wonderful is happening here, and I get to be a part of it. That this story that we are discovering through the Old Testament leading up to Easter Sunday through Jesus Christ, that this story is a good news story. And it's not just a history lesson about what God did thousands of years ago, but it's a story of what God is doing right here and right now and can do through me. So we've been outlining the story of the Bible. And, 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 and number one was this several weeks ago, that the Creator put us in charge. This is the theme of Genesis 1. The Creator, God Almighty, made the heavens and the earth good and made us in his image, the pinnacle of his creative order. And, and because of his sovereignty and through his sovereignty, he gives us dominion over this world. That's Genesis chapter 1. Flip the page and it is all destroyed. We use our sovereignty to destroy the world. That's Genesis 3 through 11. Four major stories there that aren't about the details of the story, but about the, the grand narrative that humankind made in the image of God, given dominion over the earth, that we messed the place up. 
That's the second part of the Bible. Third part of the Bible is about tribalism. God calls a tribe, the Hebrew people, sets them apart, and we find that tribalism didn't rescue us. This is the story of Genesis 2, uh, 12 through 50. God calls a tribe, works through a tribe, builds up a tribe. Then at the end of that story, they are actually in desperate need. They're utterly poor, without food because of a famine, and they have to beg Egypt for help. Here they are, beggars. These are the people of God, the tribe that God called his own. The end of that first part of their story is they are now begging for the mercy of the neighboring country of Egypt. And and not only do they receive mercy, but they are actually brought in to the gates of Egypt. They're brought into the, the care and the comfort of Egypt. And in short order, there's a new king that now considers this tribe of Israel to be a threat. So here's how the story continues in Exodus chapter 1. The new king of Egypt said, look, the people of Israel now outnumber us and are stronger than we are. So the Egyptians made the Israelites their slaves. They appointed brutal slave drivers over them, hoping to wear them out with crushing labor. Sounds like our board here at Rancho. Not quite. They made their lives bitter and were ruthless in all their demands. This is the new king of Egypt, the new pharaoh, who says these these Israelites, they're growing. And they used to be this small tribe that we kind of kept in our comfortable gates, but now they're a threat to us. If they rise up, we're in trouble. So they crushed them with oppression and harsh labor. That's where we're at in the story. Now, this tribe was essentially reaping what they sowed. They were experiencing the consequence of their faithlessness. Keep in mind, the the Bible, the Old Testament, is a constant cycle of the faithlessness of us and the faithfulness of God. And so throughout this tribal uh, season of of the Jews, they were faithless. Abraham uh, took a maidservant to be his second wife. That's not a good idea for those of you guys considering that. Jacob, a scheming liar, lying to his own father to get the birthright. Eleven of Jacob's sons schemed to murder one of their brothers and instead sell him to slavery. They choose to settle in Egypt, a place of comfort, as opposed to settle the land that God gave them. And so there's this constant disobedience from this tribe of Israel. And they're now reaping what they've sown. They're now a slave in Egypt. Instead of going back to their homeland, they decided to stick with the comfort of Egypt. They dishonored God, and they are paying the price. 400 years of slavery in Egypt. 400 years. They're faithless, and they're dealing with the natural consequences of their faithful, of faithlessness. But God is faithful. That's the story of the Bible. Our faithfulness is met with, faithlessness is met with God's faithfulness. And so even though Israel kind of got what they deserve from one point of view, choosing comfort over the land of promise, God says, I'm still going to be faithful to them. And so he calls Moses to be the hero, Moses to be the deliverer. Here's the familiar story, uh, the dialogue with God through the burning bush. Then the Lord told Moses, I have certainly seen the oppression of my people in Egypt. I have heard their cries of distress because of their harsh slave drivers. I am aware of their suffering, so I've come down to rescue them from the powers of the Egyptians and lead them out of Egypt into their own fertile and spacious land. Now go, Moses, for I am sending you to Pharaoh. You must lead my people Israel out of Egypt." If you grew up in Sunday school, you saw the movies, you know there's now 10 plagues, the 10 plagues that are devastating Egypt. And, and this, is, this is Egypt wrestling with the God of Israel. And the final plague is the plague of the Passover where they put the blood of the lamb on the doorpost and the angel of death passes over the Hebrew families, death only coming to Egypt, not coming to Israel. 
And so Egypt says, get out. The Pharaoh says, get out. We're tired of wrestling with your God. We are losing here. Go. And so roughly half a million Jews hit the desert, and they are out of there. Uh, the Pharaoh uh, re, uh, reconsiders and sends the armies out to get them back, and this is where the Red Sea opens up. Israel goes over dry land. The Pharaoh's armies are swallowed up. Israel is now free. That's where we're at in the story. Here's the reality. Roughly a half a million slaves are now dropped on the Sinai Peninsula. Have you been to the Sinai Peninsula? There's a couple of good resorts there, but everything else is desert and rock. And there wasn't resorts at the time that Israel was let out of Egypt. There a half a million people dropped in the Sinai Desert. No water, no food, no army, no protection, no culture. Keep in mind, 400 years in slavery, and you now leave in an instant. No culture. You have nothing that identifies you as a people. They've got nothing. No moral code, no legal code, no civilization, nothing. They were going to die out there. They were surrounded by barbaric civilizations that had armies, and they were bloodthirsty, and here were these people that they could perhaps take advantage of. They were going to die out there, so God gave them exactly what they needed. God first gave them freedom, which is what anybody needs kind of first, Deuteronomy 7, 7 through 8. The Lord, out of love for his people, despite their faithlessness, God loves them and has made a promise to love them. The Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery. So first they needed their freedom. They got it. Now they're in trouble. Half a million people on a, on a desert. God gave them what they needed. And they needed law and order, and they needed culture. They needed law, they needed culture. They had nothing governing them. There was absolutely no governance of these half a million people. They had Moses calling the shots, and that's about it. So in order to preserve Israel, in order for them not to be swallowed up by the surrounding tribes, God gave them law and order, and God gave them culture. Let me explain a little bit. To preserve Israel, they needed law and order. They needed rule. They needed some kind of civilizing force over their lives, so God gave them the law. That includes the Ten Commandments plus the 613 supporting commandments. Uh, that 613 number came from one rabbi in the third century, and we've just been kind of going with it ever since. Um, so let's just go with that. There's a lot of commandments in the Bible. We're talking about the books of the law, particularly uh, Exodus through Deuteronomy. This is the law of God. This is the civilizing moral and legal code that God just downloaded to this brand new wandering country. Now, this not only included the moral commandments, but this included the dietary laws, the kosher laws, and the ceremonial religious laws, which included systems of priests, tabernacle, generosity, law after law, hundreds and hundreds of laws. Some of it was legal, moral law. Some of it was giving them a culture. They had no culture. So here's a unique diet. They had no culture. Here's a unique priesthood. Here's a tabernacle that you can worship in. Here are things that are going to define you as a people, and here are the things that are going to keep you civil. So God's law, both the moral laws as well as the dietary laws and the ceremonial laws, were all given to give them civilization and to give them culture. It's a specific gift to the Hebrew people. And it came with a promise, and here's the promise of, of, of the law. Deuteronomy 28. If you fully obey the Lord God and carefully keep all his commandments that I'm giving you today, the Lord your God will set you high above the nations of the world. You will prosper. You live civilly 
with a culture that I've downloaded to you, you will prosper. You'll experience all these blessings if you obey the Lord your God. This is Deuteronomy. This is the promise of God about the law. This is a conditional promise. Keep in mind the promise to Abraham that God would bless him and bless all the nations through him. That's unconditional. Even if we are faithless, God remains faithful to that promise. The, the law covenant, the covenant of law was conditional. If they obeyed their law and order paradigm, they would prosper. If they disobeyed their law and order paradigm, they would suffer. Now, that's true of every civilization of all times. It's not just true of Israel, it's true of everyone. If we are a law and order country, we'll do well. If we're not a law and order country and just descend into anarchy, we won't. It's just the simplest thing, right? So let's not over-spiritualize or mysticize this as far as God's you know, promise to obey God's law. It was simply a law given to keep this wandering half a million people civil, keep them in order, don't kill each other, don't take each other's stuff, don't lie about each other, you know, keep your own wife and husband to yourself, just some basic stuff to keep them civil. The same is true today. We're a country of law and order, and you could trace that all the way back to the Ten Commandments. We're a country of law and order, right? If we remain a country of law and order, we're going to do well. If we choose to abandon law and order and every man or woman for himself, we're not going to do well. It's really, really simple. That's the covenant of law. Now, here's, here's the law in summary. These are the Ten Commandments and, and, and the supporting commandments. Let's go to, 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 to the commandments. Honor God, work hard, but rest well. Honor your parents in your marriage. Don't murder, don't steal, don't slander. Live content, enjoy what you have. This is the summary of the commandments, all of them. And, and this is good. This is what was needed, absolutely needed, when you're half a million people wandering around the wilderness with no law, no order, no culture. This comes in handy, right? So that's why God gave the law. Did the law, the first five books of the Bible, all the commandments, was the law effective to make the Hebrew people totally righteous? What's the answer? No. Was the law, first five books of the Bible, the Pentateuch, was that effective to rescue the world? What's the answer? No. So here's the outline that we have looked at so far, right? Here's the outline of the Old Testament. The Creator put us in charge. We destroyed the world by our own actions of pride and, and ego and violence and power. Tribalism didn't work to rescue the world. And the law didn't work to rescue the world. The law did not work to rescue the world. In fact, Israel had the law. They had the law and they continually disobeyed the law. They had the promise that if they obeyed the law, they would prosper, but they continuously disobeyed. In fact, the day Moses brought down the law from uh, Mount Sinai, they were involved in all kinds of grotesque, harmful behavior and worshiping an idol that they, they made, this golden calf, right? They served other gods throughout the ages of the kings. 1 Samuel 8, Israel turned their backs on God in every way, 1 Kings 17. Israel was hard-hearted and rebellious, Nehemiah 9. Israel forgot God, Psalm 50. Israel tested God, Psalm 78. Israel had a fake uh, hypocritical faith, Isaiah chapter 1, and dozens and dozens, maybe hundreds of other examples where Israel as a people that had the law of God and the promise to prosper if they obeyed God's law failed and failed and failed. So the law never made Israel righteous, and the law never rescued this broken world. The law didn't work to rescue this world. And in fact, the law was never given to rescue this world. We have to understand why God gave the law. 
And, and if we understand why God gave the law, then we'll understand what we're reading when we read the Old Testament. We'll understand what God means when he talks about the law. The law was never given to rescue us. It was never given to rescue the Jews. It was never given to rescue the world. In fact, we see in the New Testament now, through the lens of, of Jesus Christ, we see that God never intended the law to rescue the world in any way. In fact, the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 4 says that God had a relationship with Abraham, a genuine relationship with Abraham, 500 years before the law even came. So Paul is saying, by that, we know that God's plan was never to have the law bring us to God or obedience to the law bring us to God because God was near to Abraham before the law. Here's the way Paul puts it in Romans chapter 4, verse 16. The promise of God, and this is the unconditional promise of God to bless the Jews, then through the Jews bless the world. The unconditional promise of God comes by faith, not by law. So that it may be by grace, not only to those who are of the law, but also to those who are of faith. The only people of the law are the Jewish people. I'll say that again. The only people of the law are the Jewish people because the only people God gave the law to are the Jewish people. To make them into a civilized nation, a proud nation, a prosperous nation through law and order and through a particular culture that he gave them with their dietary and religious laws. The only people who receive the law of God are the Jews. Everyone else is by faith. And then there's this invitation in Romans that says, even the Jews aren't right with God by the law. They're invited to enjoy a relationship with God by faith through grace. So it's never been about the law. It's never been about the commandments, right? Never. In fact, the law was given for the benefit of humankind. This is so important to understand. The law was given for the benefit of humankind to civilize our barbaric tendencies. The law was not given for the benefit of God. So keep in mind, in the religious mind frame, which a lot of us probably grew up in and maybe some of us still have today, in the religious mind frame, we have to obey God in order to please God. That is so messed up, that we have to obey God in order to please God. That means God gave us the law for his benefit. I need to be pleased. I'm a grumpy God. I'm mad at everybody. I'm mad at this broken world. I'm mad at all the failure of this world, and so I need to be pleased. I need to be appeased. Here's the law so that you can serve me by it. That's so wrong. Every religious paradigm approaches the commandments in that way. God says no. In fact, Jesus himself really established this. Uh, Jesus and his disciples were breaking the law. They were breaking the command of God. There's no other way around it. There's no other way around it. They're picking ears of corn or what, something, grain, on a Saturday. I mean, there's no way around that. That is breaking the, you know, the, the details of God's law. And Jesus did it intentionally. I just, in my head, I just had this great, you know, image of Jesus staring right at the religious leaders and picking a piece of corn, a piece of that corn I mean, right now. He did it to put a thumb in the eye of these people who thought that God's law was about attaining something from God or appeasing God as though the law, obeying the law is our gift to God. No, 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 it's never like that. Jesus says, God gave the Sabbath, the day of rest. God gave the Sabbath day of rest as a gift to mankind. God made the Sabbath to serve man. God gave his law to serve man. We don't use God's law to serve God. God gave the law to serve us, to make our life better. I'll give you a little example here. Uh, some of you may be diabetic. You know somebody's diabetic, and insulin is a big deal, right? Insulin's a big deal. Um, 
So you know how it works, maybe on a certain schedule or before you, you eat, you need to give yourself an injection in order to regulate your blood, blood sugar. Insulin is very important. Insulin is given by your doctor to save your life. Insulin is given by your doctor to make life better, right? Now, we could turn that around and we can say, okay, well, it's not about making our life better. The insulin itself must be studied. The insulin itself is the goal. And so we have to you know, understand the chemistry of insulin. We have to memorize the instruction of, of, of insulin, right? This is what uh, I might call Bible study culture. I love studying God's word. I do it for a living, right? So don't, you know, don't harass me for that. Bible study culture says, you know what? I'm going to take God's word and I'm going to study God's word. I'm going to memorize the instructions of God's word. I'm going to memorize the law of God's word. I'm going to try to obey God's word. God says, I've given you my word. I've given you the law as a benefit first to the Jews to civilize them and to strengthen them so that they would bring forward my grace through Jesus Christ. It's not about studying the Bible it's about receiving God's word, which was given for our benefit. That's the law. If we turn God's word into a, a religion and commandments of a religion to manage everybody's behavior as a way to appease an angry God, we are lost. And so the Apostle Paul says, stop using the commandments of the Bible to work for God. The commandments of the Bible were given as a gift to us. They weren't given as a gift to God. So stop working for God's approval. Stop working for God's approval. The Apostle Paul says that in Romans 4 again. People are considered righteous. People are good with God, not because of their work, not because they obey God's commandments, but because of their faith in God who forgives. That's the goal. The goal is faith. The goal is believing that God forgives us by grace through Jesus Christ. That's the goal. Not convincing people that we have to obey God's law in order to be approved by God. Let me put it this way, and this is kind of stark here. God isn't much interested in managing our behavior. The religious paradigm really lands on this, that God wants us well-behaved. God wants us compliant children. God wants us nice, neat, orderly, obedient boys and girls. I don't think God is much interested in managing our behavior. Jesus essentially proved this when he befriended all kinds of sinners, right? He was, he was absolutely castigated. He hangs out with sinners. He must be from the devil himself because he's hanging out with people who disobey the commandments. And Jesus is like, I, these people are fun to hang around. <laughs> you know, he's in their house and he's, he's just with them and he's building friendships, not based on any condition. He's not hanging around people who obey all the commandments. In fact, quite the opposite. He's just hanging out with people and he's revealing God's grace to these people. He's not managing their obedience to God's commandments. One of my favorite passages, I talk about it a lot, is when the Pharisees are straining out gnats. You know, they're, they're about to drink their wine and they have a little filter there and they're straining out little gnats because the Bible says don't eat creepy crawly things. Well, the Bible says don't eat bacon and I like bacon. So they're straining out gnats. But Jesus says, you're missing the whole point. You are missing the whole point. You're missing love and faithfulness and justice on the earth. You're missing the whole story of what God is doing here because you're straining out religious gnats. You're missing it all. That's what happens when we think God is interested in managing our behavior. I met with a man this last week, a tortured soul. I mean, here's a guy who is a professional in his industry. He is razor sharp. He is brilliant. You can just tell he's a good guy, but he is trapped in this religious slavery of law-keeping. 
And um, somebody here at Rancho uh, passed on one of our sermons and says, I think you need to take a listen to this. <laughs> so clearly he's one of these hardcore, hyper-religious, got to obey, got to obey types. And, and somebody gave him one of our messages on, on grace and, and uh, he listened to it and was significantly bothered by it. And that happens. Uh, he then started listening more and more. His commute every day is four to five hours. He has a, his, his business is in LA. He commutes four to five hours a day. And so he did what any self-respecting person would do. And he listened to every single one of our sermons that are online. I said, dude, you are more faithful than anybody who goes to our church. So <laughs> clearly. So he just absorbed all this stuff and he had notes and he was ready to go. And so finally he he, he met with me, and um, it was very respectful. So we were both respectful, certainly back and forth. But he was challenging this idea that we really are not under God's law because he was a guy who studied the Bible and studied the law, and he was striving to obey, obey, obey God's law. And he told a story of a season in his life where he was drinking too much and enjoying it too much hanging out with friends, drinking too much and enjoying it too much. And he was, he was very emotional as he was describing that season of his life. And knowing where he was coming from, because I too used to see God and life and the law very much like him. I said, man, I speak of your language. I, I, I know everything you're saying. I can finish your sentence. I have lived that kind of life. And I'm going to ask you a question that's a your language question, right? This isn't coming from my language, but from your language. I said, do you believe that during that time of drinking too much and enjoying it too much, during that time, do you believe if you died during that time that God would send you to eternal conscious torment in hell? What do you think his answer was? Yeah. And my heart just broke for this guy. I mean, he is a, he is a professional and he's a, just a good guy living in the slavery of law as though God's priority is to manage his daily behavior. And he has a list of five sins he manages every single day torturously. Some of them I don't even think are sins. But anyway, that's a hell of a different thing. Well, I didn't go that far. Here's the reality about living under the law. The law of God can be a curse. I know that sounds strange, but listen to what Paul says in Galatians 3. All who rely on observing the law. These are those who think they're right with God because of the law. They're under a curse. They love God's word. They're memorizing God's word. They're, quote, obeying God's word, but they're under a curse because they think that through God's law, they'll have God approve of them. For it is written, cursed is everyone who does not continue to do everything written in the book of the law. The law is also a prison. This is God's word here. Before faith came, we were held prisoners by God's law, locked up until faith should be revealed. Faith releases us from the burden of God's commandments, right? Faith believes that God's a God of love, that he forgave us in Jesus Christ, and that settles it. The cross of Christ settles it, that we're forgiven. The resurrection of Christ settles that, that we have new and eternal life as a gift, right? So we're free from the, the slavery of the law. The law is weak and ineffective. And yes, we're talking about God's law being weak and ineffective. The law is now set aside. The law of God set aside because it was weak and useless, for the law made nothing perfect. So a better hope is introduced by which we draw near to God. We're near to God because we believe he is near to us by grace through faith in Christ. He forgave us through Christ. We believe that we know we're near with God. We don't need the law and behavior management. The law babysits immature people. The law is our schoolmaster. And that word schoolmaster in the Greek is a tutor of children. So the law, the first five books of the Bible, 
all the law and order stuff to the Jews and the cultural stuff to the Jews, that was meant to be a gift to an immature nation that was just birthed on the Sinai Peninsula. And God gave them this law to keep them civil and he gave them the law to give them a culture and that's it. It was a gift to them to civilize them and give them a culture. And then they, they, the idea was they were to grow up as a more mature nation to give us the Savior, but it, the law was never quite effective to make the nation of Israel holy and righteous, and the law right now is not effective to make any of us righteous. So God calls us to be free from the law. We don't need a schoolmaster. We don't need kindergarten anymore. And, and I'm telling you, nothing against kindergarten, but it has a time and a place. You know, you go to kindergarten, there's rules and regulations. Johnny, raise your hand before you speak. We don't want total chaos here, you know? When you're in high school, I hope we're still not having the rule, raise your hand before you speak, because there's a courtesy of conversation when you get older. <laughs> not for everybody. Susie, don't pick your nose. It's just, it's fine in your house, but it's gross out here. You just need to know that, right? Hopefully you're not picking your nose as a high school girl in class. Jimmy, don't poke Joey with your pencil. I know it's tons of fun chasing him around, but we just, you don't do that. Catherine, eat all your lunch. I know you want to play, but you got to live, eat, right? I mean, there, there's just rules that we put in place when we're young and immature. As we grow older, we don't need the rules anymore because we're more mature. So God gave the rules and regulations to an immature nation called Israel. The hope then is you grow up and don't need the rules anymore. Do you need a rule do you need a law? Do you need a threat that you'll lose your license if you drink and drive today? Do you need a threat that you will lose your license so you don't go drink and drive today? Do you need that law? Do you need that threat? Boy, this service isn't really sure. <laughs> Maybe you have some plans this afternoon. I don't know. No, if we're a decent human being, we don't need a legal threat that somebody's going to take our license if we drink and drive. Why? Because we don't want to kill people. We're just mature enough to know there's consequences to my actions. If I do some dumb stuff, somebody might get hurt, and I don't want to hurt anybody, so I'm not going to do it. That's a motivation of love, not law. At some point, we don't need religious law to motivate us. We are motivated by love. Do you need the threat of your spouse catching you committing adultery so that you don't commit adultery? <laughs> and by the way, the threat's real. It's real. Or do you... Are you faithful to your husband or wife because you love your husband or wife? See, when we're just mature people and we live a life of love, we don't need law. If we live a life of love, we don't need law. And God calls us to live a life of love, so we don't need law. As you read your Old Testament, you read Genesis 1, this is God's vision for a world in which he loves and a world that we have dominion over. It's a world of order and peace. You see Genesis 3 through 11, we messed it up. We messed it up. You see Genesis 11 through 50, a tribe, the Hebrew tribe didn't rescue us. You see the rest of the four books of, of, uh, of the Bible that finish out the Pentateuch, the law doesn't rescue the world. What rescues the world is love, not law. God wants us to enjoy a life of love, and he wants us to enjoy a life of love that lives lawlessly. We do not need the law. We do not need the 10 commandments. We don't need the 613. We can live in the freedom of love, and what Jesus says when he left us the single command of love, love your neighbor as yourself, he says all the law and the prophets is fulfilled in love. If we live a life of love, love received and love given, we don't need the law. Live lawlessly. 
And some people do freak out. The religious people freak out. If you tell people to live lawlessly, it's going to be the most crazy, hedonistic, grotesque thing you can ever imagine. And I'm telling you, that's not the way it works. God's grace and God's love is so complete that it transforms us to be motivated by love, to love our, our, our wife, our husband, to love our kids, to love our neighbor, to love our boss, to love our, our coworkers, to love our employees, to love our neighbor, to love the stranger, to love the people on Skid Row, to love the premature Giselle who hasn't had a visitor and to take her as, as our daughter. That's love at work. And that kind of love rescues the world. So imagine your own life, a life lived without the threat of law, a life lived without all these religious commandments to navigate, a life lived knowing that God is not managing the intricacy of your little behavior every day so that he's either happy with you or sad with you. He'll bless you or punish you to live free from that whole paradigm and live a life that enjoys being loved by God unconditionally, freely, and purely, and a life motivated to love others in the same way. That is a good life. That's a life that God will use to help rescue this world. I'm gonna close in prayer, and as I do, for some of you, this may be a new opportunity, a new experience. This might be a whole new language for you, especially if you were raised in a religious environment. I wanna encourage you to receive this love, unconditional love through Christ right now, and you can even express that today through baptism or heated baptism pools right outside these doors, and it's just a sign and a symbol of you being immersed in the love and grace of God that, that washes us clean and forgives us. Let's pray. Our God and Father, thank you for your love, for your grace, for your mercy through Jesus Christ, who revealed you as a loving heavenly father, gave his life for this message of forgiveness and grace, rose again from the dead, which we celebrate in two weeks to give this assurance that we are, are, are alive now and forever because of your gift given freely to us by grace. Help us to stop working for your approval. We have your approval. We're your sons and daughters, and yes, we're not perfect, but you forgive us. You love us. You've proven that through Jesus Christ. And you want us to know and believe how, how much you love us. And as we receive that, we can then be empowered by you to love others in the same way, to be selfless, to be generous with our time, uh, to be generous in our lives lived for the benefit of others. And God, that honors you. And so help us to be a part of this, incredibly, uh, this incredible story, a good news story of you rescuing this world And you're doing that through us as we receive and give your love. In Christ's name we pray and everybody said, amen.